Welcome to my so-called sustainable life, a podcast where we compare our personal sustainability lives with our professional one. We share candid conversations, interview guests, and get real about the realities of working in sustainability while also working towards a more just future, all in the name of mitigating our climate anxiety. Sustainable Concordia would like to acknowledge that my so-called sustainable life is recorded on the unceded territory of the Ganyangehaga and the Haudenosaunee in Jojage. We are committed to listening to and collaborating with the original stewards of this land. Go to nativeland.ca to find out more about the territories we are on as Turtle Island inhabitants. We'd also like to acknowledge that the physical space we work out of is currently inaccessible and that we are committed to making our programming accessible for everyone in spite of this. We're back, we're back baby. At the time that we're recording this, it's been, what, two weeks since we've been back at work, and we had a whole holiday break, and we had all these lofty goals and ambitions. So let's see, how did they turn out for you? I was listening back to the episodes, and you were okay, I'm going to have some deep conversations with my mom. I sure did. Oh. <laughs> okay, so just remembering that change does take time, but it's happening. I see my family about once a year because we don't live in the same city. So when we do see each other, it gets a bit spicy, but you know, wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. I always feel coming back home, it's being an alien. (laughs) Your family hasn't really seen the progression or you don't really understand everyday things that come in that add up (laughs) to create the version that they see of you. It's always kind of getting to know your family again. Yeah. My update, I was trying to clear stuff out of my closet, which didn't end up happening. But I haven't broken my fast fashion rule, which was really tough over the holidays. And I was looking up different sustainable groups. And there's this one called the Girlfriend Collective. They have inclusive sizing of workout clothes. And I think they have ethical practices in regards to garment workers. So mm-hmm. hopefully next time I need a pair of active wear leggings, <laughs> I don't have to go to Old Navy. Speaking of shopping, I did some shopping, I guess not really over the holidays, but my mom, I went to go holiday shopping with her and she loves to go to the outlets, which sometimes, I'm, yeah, of course, it's a great deal because it's literally all the stuff that these brands can't sell. So technically it's buying dead stock. So, you know, it's holiday season and my mom knows when the sales are coming and when is the best time to shop. So I'm always trying to go with her. So I got tempted and I got a pair of shoes from it was off Saks Fifth Outlet store. Okay, there's these one Prada shoes that I've been dreaming about since 2012. And they kind of look clown shoes. They have this dip in paint rubber sole. And this type of shoe is becoming more popular now. There's a big chunky heel. And I saw something that was similar, but obviously for a quarter of the price. And I've been literally wanting to get these Prada shoes. And every year I'm going to put away a hundred bucks and one day I'll afford these shoes. Obviously that hasn't happened. And so I saw this pair and I swear to you, my heart started palpitating. It wasn't the exact same model, but it was under a hundred dollars. And it was, you know, in quotation marks, good quality. It says that it's made out of leather, whatever, whatever. And it's this brand called Mark Fisher, which I've never heard of, but you know what? I haven't bought new shoes and new, new shoes, not shoes from a thrift store in almost a year and a half. So this is my purchase. 
So I bought it and I asked the salesperson, how long do I have to return it? Because I I need to decide if I'm really going to keep it and how long I'm going to keep this item for. Because when I think about what I'm purchasing, I want to, you know, give myself pleasure to wear new clothes. I'm not just going to abandon my the joy that I find in dressing up and getting new things, but I need to make sure and have this conversation with myself that I'm actually going to keep this stuff. So there was a 30 day return policy. So cool, 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 cool. And then, well, I need new pants with these shoes. So (laughs) it's a spiral. (laughs) So then I found some stuff on a sales rack. There was this pair of pants for 20 bucks and I was so close to getting it, but you know what? It's not worth it. So a couple of weeks later, I went to the thrift store and found a pair of jeans that I'm currently trying to resize and fit to me because they're garter jeans. And I'm obsessed because they're... So (laughs) they're jogging pants, but jeans. So there's no real enclosure zipper. Whoa. (laughs) No, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but you know what? I don't care. They're comfortable. They're baggy and cool and they make me feel good. So, so those are the things that I've bought in my holiday journey of of purchasing. And I'm I'm proud of my purchases. You had the conversation with yourself. I have to. And now you're going to keep the shoes forever. Forever. To your like children and your children's children. Well, I don't know if they'll go on for that long, but I'll bring them to the cobbler if they break. That's for sure. While we were away, a lot of stuff happened, I feel, in the fashion world. I mean, stuff's always happening, right? Yeah. yeah. But just recently, André Léon Talley passed away. And I think he passed away from complications having to do with COVID. So the disease is real and it will take down giant and so I just wanted to talk about him a little bit because we're gonna be talking about the devil wears Prada and apparently Stanley Tucci's character was based off of Andre so I'm gonna read the stuff I found on Wikipedia I just looked it up I want to get it right Andre Leon Talley was an American fashion journalist stylist creative director and editor at large of Vogue magazine. He was their fashion news director from 1983 to 1987. And he was the first African-American male creative director from 1988 to 1995. And then he was the editor at large from 1998 to 2013. And yeah, I also, he came from humble beginnings was raised by his grandmother, who was a like cleaning lady at Duke University in North Carolina. And he credits her for giving him an understanding of luxury. And then he found his first copy of Vogue at the local library, which that's Matilda realness. (laughs) And the other thing, while he was at Brown University, he did a master's and he wrote his thesis on the influence of Black women on Charles Baudelaire's poetry. And the only Baudelaire poem I remember is The Albatross, which makes me think of student loans. Because, <laughs> you know, albatross around my neck. But yeah. And was the fashion advisor for the Obamas. They talked and he gave them advice on how to be stylish while being presidential. But that means that he might be responsible for 
the tan suit incident. Do you remember when Obama wore that tan suit and everybody freaked out? That was his brainchild, maybe, possibly. (laughs) And then I looked up his personal style and very big on oversized pieces. So that's why I said he's the OG. He's the original box with legs. And yeah, it's just big heavy hitter in the industry. Big loss. And he was young. He was 70. 23 or something, right? Yeah. So sad. So there's been so many shifts in the industry. I feel with a lot of icons and trailblazers just passing, but I'm hoping this is going to be, you know, a new wave and a new era for other people to just create new things in this industry. My favorite, well, it wasn't even his personal look, but I remember from the September issue, there was a shot in this tennis match. And he just looked really fabulous playing tennis. He had Louis Vuitton towel around him and all of his gear was just so beautiful. Amazing. Yeah. And I guess also so much innovation from fashion comes from humble beginnings, humble roots. So there's no need to go out of your way to achieve luxury. I feel like you can understand it and appreciate it and it can come to you at your own time. I hope he rests in power. Yeah. Any other updates? I don't know. I guess I'm just always continuously just trying to understand what my relationship to fashion is at all turning points of my life because you just can't get away from it, folks. If you put on clothes every day, you're participating in the industry. So it's fun because that means you get to make decisions, but then sometimes it just feels overwhelming. But I have to also keep it real (laughs) that there's just sometimes, you know, that these Instagram ads be catching me. Yes. And it's so directly because when you're scrolling, I feel you're already in a vulnerable position, right? Then you see the Instagram ad, it's offering you everything that you don't have. Suddenly you're trying to find the best version of this cheap thing that you've seen 15 times. So directly related to my anxiety do you feel that so directly I'm anxious boom gotta go see if there's sales or if there's clothes you know that I could get to feel better yeah it's not the same as going shopping in person though when it was an in-person thing I could go into a store and I could just know right away and then with online shopping I spend so much time reading the descriptions mm-hmm measuring thinking it's so much and then everything is different size everything I own is completely different size from the other and I realize it's because of the bisexual phenomenon your clothes is either skin tight or oversized and there's no in between I do think there is a sizing problem though you know I think that whole thing is really it's come out of that and I feel it really limits everyone's style in general And I think we spoke about that in in the first episode, but that's definitely another marketing scheme where you can only fit into these clothes and and have these certain styles. Honestly, that just goes into this whole idea that I think is underlying with what the marketing of sustainability is. It's really for a certain type of people that are, you know, privileged in a certain type of way. And I guess we'll get into that uh, around greenwashing because I think that's part of it too. It's, you know, how are we being marketed to as to push more items and who is it for and how are we purchasing these so yes (laughs) because it's not fair I feel we should have more sizes and more cuts for people and you said it doesn't take that much fabric I just think it's you know people are trying to fit the things that they can't because they don't have any other choices and even if they want to fit into that people aren't giving them proper options 
you know, and I think it's just feels in that way, very elitist to all different body types. And that's not cool. That's not sustainable. Not in the, in the green sense. I think it's not sustainable to our souls and our confidence and our psyche. (laughs) I agree with you. And I've noticed with local Montreal brands, they're not size inclusive. They're not. They'll have one mid-sized person and be like, we celebrate all curves, which also mid-size being a new term. We're really going to make more terms for this instead of not caring. Totally. I feel at the end of the day, right now where fashion is, that's really what kind of life do you want? Whatever it is that you want that will make you have this certain power. We can sell it to you. You can buy it in this garment and that's all fashion is. Mm-hmm. to push more items and not really listen to what people like need and want that's the responsibility of the consumer but also the designer to think about you know what they're designing for who and if it's equitable for the system that is being produced in yeah it kind of reminds me of when I was younger I went to a fashion day camp sort of situation it was called crafty couture and it was downtown And it was me and 19 other girls, I want to say. It was actually pretty cool because we were doing a lot of no-sew projects. We had one where we recycled a t-shirt into a bag and the handle part was braided. And we did a fashion show at the end with creations that we had made. One of the camp counselors, in my head, her name is Kelly because she reminds me of Kelly Osborne and she drove a convertible and it was the summer. So she was driving down the street in her convertible in her eighties outfit. And it was sick as hell. And she was the person that taught you how to do model sketching, how to make jewelry. And they give you those trays where you line up all the beads and you bead the beads through. And then we talk about different fashion weeks in Milan and in New York and all this stuff but yeah she was very cool it was very fun oh they also did a thing where you had to make a dress out of toilet paper that was fun but yeah I learned a lot about fashion and we watched the devil wears Prada as one of the activities and I had never seen this movie before and it was so good (laughs) I feel like that movie the scene where Andy sort of comes in and she's, oh, I hate it here. I'm just trying to get to my next career goal, right? And then mm-hmm. hiding between one belt and another belt and they're the same color, big air quotes. And yeah, and then Miranda kind of reads her the riot act. That sort of solidified for me, okay, I didn't just put this on my body. A series of choices were made and then it landed on my body (laughs) you know I also feel because even though it was a comedy I really feel that sort of insight and the fact that it's supposed to be a parody or a commentary on Anna Wintour so I feel we as the consumer finally got to see the climb (laughs) you know because Andy comes in as a lay person who doesn't know anything and she learns everything and there's a lot of toxic stuff that she learns and then hopefully unlearns in the sequel that never happened (laughs) but yeah how do you feel what's your experience with the devil wears Prada when I first saw it oh my god it wasn't that big of a shock to me because any narrative and the capitalistic mind frame of any business where you work from the bottom and work your way to the top but I think what I thought was kind of poignant about it is how much of this beauty and standards around specifically the fashion industry was exemplified here in this movie and recently 
spoiler alert, but I watched Cruella with my mom. And we both thought that there was a similar storyline with the Devil Wears Prada, where you have this person who has all this power and is actually a fashion designer. And then there's another person coming in to try and follow them in their footsteps and admires them so much. The narrative hasn't changed so much. <laughs> it's still as toxic and still promoting this idea of, you know, avenge and get to the top and beat out the, the competition, I guess. Yeah, but I thought the show was fun. I don't know. I haven't seen it been so long but it's definitely iconic i think cruella was one of the inspirations i think for the wardrobe of miranda priestley you kind of see that makes sense a new person has joined us on the podcast we have a special guest so one of the things that we do at sc is os always be plugged in and it's organizing sustainability and one of the participants of that workshop nadia is here to talk to us about greenwashing and fashion Hello, hello. Happy to be here. I'm a fashion designer. I've been working in this industry for about 20 years. It's been a long time, a lot of experience, a lot of things done. But yeah, I think I'm a person who's constantly evolving. I think we all are constantly evolving. I'm just very cognizant of the fact that I'm doing it. And yeah, I look to learn always. And I'm always looking at sustainability and trying to understand the connection to fashion, agriculture, because that is a part of sustainability and fashion. Yeah, overall in everything that I do, I'm most interested constantly in really challenging perspectives. Okay, so I guess what we want to do is establish a bit of a timeline of fashion, fashion industry. Where did it start? And I guess from my perspective, when I was younger, I remember The Hills existing. And I think a lot about how that show has changed fashion because it was around Vogue and Lauren Conrad and Whitney Port were trying to be. I'm going to step in right here. The Hills is a show that I never watched or entertained watching and had little to no interest in knowing anything about. So for me, (laughs) looking at The Hills as being something that affected fashion or fashion for me, that no, that wasn't for me. And I wasn't interested because one... The narrative to me was, okay, it's about these women, these white women with a certain amount of privilege, living a certain life that is really not the reality. It's not my reality. It didn't speak to me in any way, shape, or form. I've also never been a big fan of reality TV in general, just because so much of it seems to be performative in terms of creating a situation or what have you to get a reaction so that it, you know, it looks good on TV. And I guess I'd rather uh, take in an actual scripted show when that comes to that, because I know that it's a script, whereas I don't feel comfortable watching something where I feel somebody's trying to trick me into having a reaction or feel a certain way under the guise of it being reality, when it's not really reality. It's a made up reality in order to suit a narrative that they want to put forward. So I have an issue with all of these shows when I realize that this is not necessarily an authentic, it's it's a reenactment. Yes. And that was actually a big part of the show is at the end, they drive off and everybody was like, oh, no, it's fake, which we knew. But I just think it represents an interesting part of history because it was the early 2000s where the thin white body was the ideal and everybody was trying to be Paris Hilton and everybody was sort of trying to get towards that. And I guess before them, there was Twiggy right? I'm gonna, yes, there was an image of Twiggy in popular fashion culture, but that also negates the history of designers of color and models of color that existed before that. And they were there. And of course, they weren't getting necessarily the same attention 
as the slimmer, skinnier models. And, you know, Twiggy definitely represents a look from a certain time. But then you're not thinking about, you know, there was the Black is Beautiful movement and there were photographers and his name escapes him right now, Kwame. I can't remember, but... His name is Kwame Braithwaite. He was very big in taking these photographs of Black women and Black men, just Black people in general, and pushing that narrative of, you know, Black is Beautiful. There was also, there was this huge fashion show, the Battle of Versailles, and they had basically designers from France who were showing their clothes and the models walked in the general way that they normally walked. And then you had a contingency of designers from America who had gone over. And there was one designer, he was a Black designer, and I'm so sorry, guys, but names always kind of escaped me. Yes, thank you, Stephen Burroughs. Anyways, this is a pretty good bit of fashion history. And he was very famous for actually putting together, working with Jersey and putting together different colors, which was something a lot of designers weren't really doing at the time. So it's something that he brought forth. And when he did that, he also brought his design, his models that he really wanted to work with. So you had Bethann Hardison, Pat Cleveland, what have you. And those models came down and they were, they were moving in ways that were fun and and fantastic. And it was ways that other models weren't moving, that they didn't move. They would normally just do the straight runway. And these women came out and their hips were swishing and they were moving and they were giving you all the attitude, all the glam, all the diva, all of it. And this was in the seventies. And no, we don't hear about that. But just to say that there have been these models and there have been these designers who've been pushing on these barriers over and over again. I just, I'm bringing it to the attention because I don't want it to seem they never existed. And at that time, That might have been the popular narrative, but it wasn't the only narrative. And it's because you had people in history who were doing these things that the narrative today has changed. And I mean, we continue to do that. You continue to push forward. So as much as I look at what gets pushed forward in popular culture or mass culture, I also recognize that that is not the only story that is not the only thing going on. And we have so many subcultures that now become a part of popular culture. Everything has kind of split up and trends have taken on a whole different role than what they used to be before. And you have, you know, different styles going on and people dress a lot more now in styles, in terms of styles connected to a certain subculture where before it was really dressing based on whatever the designers were pushing as the look of the season or the look of the year or what have you. But yeah, I think things have changed a lot, but, and a lot more stories are being told. And this is why it's cool to have these conversations and talk about it to really show that people have been making strides through time. And we don't talk enough about those strides that people have been making and the things that have been going on. And as much as yes, you know, there has been a certain narrative out there, we need to recognize people who have been pushing through and doing the work, doing the hard work for a very long time, but doing it because I'm not gonna say they love the industry, but they love what fashion can be. And they love the freedom that it can give and the creativity that you can have. And that creativity doesn't just touch the clothes, but it touches the way that the clothing can be presented. And then it can touch the way that you put together the fabrics and materials, all of this. There is a love there and there is an art there. And those are the things that move me about fashion. Not so much. There's, there are systems that don't work. There are systems that are harmful. But there's another side to the side that I look at and remind myself as to why I'm involved in this industry. Cool. I think it's a really great and interesting for me to listen to Paige's intro, or I guess when you start to think about the pop culture references and Nadia's long history and your battles within fashion. And it's also very interesting that 
page as a consumer, you're coming from it in a different perspective. And Nadia, as a designer, you're also coming from it in a different perspective. And I think now when we think about sustainability, these conversations are very, very important because these are the two conversations that have been so far apart because we have such a huge system that separates from the designer making these clothes to the end product to the consumer purchasing it and getting it. So I totally get, and I also think in some ways we need to just state that like popular culture, which is the media that most people consume and what they view of is as cool or what they consume as fashion. When, you know, people that have a deep love for fashion as a way for self-expression, self-survival, and as a way to create their art, have such a different relationship to it. So it's interesting what both of you are saying, and I think it'll lead us into where we are right now, because we're just at the cusp of a lot of consumers thinking differently about where fashion is. I know this might be an unpopular thing to say, but some of that is because of all this bullshit of greenwashing that has been happening. Because although greenwashing is 100% bullshit, it's a way for people who have never thought about fair wages, zero waste, and all those things, which is the mainstream to be actually, does this matter? You know, so I think we're at a very interesting, like, turning point. And I think we can all agree in the history of things that sustainability and fashion has been going around for such a long time. I think even in the 60s, where mass manufacturing and marketing were booming the consumer's trend. And then the hippies were actually, we want to embrace natural fabrics. And then they were living an anti-fashion simple life. And then you have the punk and goth movements in the 70s and 80s that were rejecting the traditional ideas of fashion. And they were also preferring unique vintage pieces. And then you have the 80s with the anti-fur movements. And then the 90s is when you see the internet and global communication and offshore manufacturing coming to play and then fashion becoming more accessible and cheaper than ever. So, you know, you're fast forwarding it to a little bit later and production is increasing. Consumption rates are justifying this increase. There's a fast turnover, a quick production, and there's, there's a huge growing popularity in street style which we all know is off the backs of marginalized people and is now painting this industry of what I think it was a 2019 or something report from the state of fashion. It's this organization that releases these reports that I try and check every year. But they said that in 2019, we're buying 60% more clothing than we did 15 years ago and keeping these garments for half as long. I would be interested to hear, I guess, from a designer, Nadia, since you've been in, you know, industry for so long, what has your progression within this whole industry timeline been from before to now? Because I know you've had brands where you've used upcycling that was even before it was something trendy and hot. And what is it that you think? And then maybe Paige, then you tell us what your journey is as a consumer. And then I think it's interesting because we're at the crux of these two things happening and discussing on what is sustainability and how does greenwashing kind of mix into these different messages between consumer and designer. So yes, there's a lot of greenwashing, but the other standpoint that you have to understand, and this is from, again, you're asking me from the designer's perspective, this is because I'm looking at what exists as a system. First and foremost, no brand can be sustainable right now. Unless you are at home creating something for yourself and you grew the plant that gave you the fiber to then have the yarn to weave your material and then you cut it yourself and you sewed it yourself and you know exactly where those threads came from that you're using to sew on your machine, 
it's almost impossible to be sustainable without having a full understanding of your supply chain. The other thing is we don't have the infrastructure right now when we're talking about, you know, on a bigger scale to be fully sustainable. Most brands can't afford that. They just, they straight can't. Not only can they not afford that, but again, the system isn't necessarily in place. When you're looking at the production of a garment, and I'm not talking about the design of a garment, there's another side of sustainability that deals with the design of the garment. Because from the beginning, you can design a garment to make sure that it is easier to be recycled later on. Not every designer is thinking that way. And that's a whole different way of looking at things that will then help you later on with the end life of the garment. But in terms of the production and understanding where your materials are coming from, especially if you're producing garments overseas, you don't necessarily know where the factory is getting their materials from. You don't know if that fabric was necessarily grown. It's 100% organic. And even if you don't have the proper certification, because again, certification can be another racket because you have to be a factory that can pay to get the certification. And it's possible that your fabric is organic or, you know, made in a sustainable way but you can't necessarily afford to pay for certification. That's a whole other story. So yeah, so you don't necessarily have all the tools in place to make sure that your fabric is coming from where they say it's coming from. You don't necessarily know if your manufacturer is giving some of the garments to be sewn to a subcontractor, because sometimes that happens and the, the company who's purchasing the garment doesn't necessarily know that. And then Again, there's transportation. You don't know, you know, there's fuel or whatever being used and you can have programs within your company to offset the carbon that transportation is taking for your garment to be shipped from one place to the other. But again, it's not built in. And so there are all these little moving parts that you kind of have to assemble and there is no one straight system. So yes, greenwashing happens, but I think greenwashing also happens because not because a company is intentionally trying to be dishonest, but because the system doesn't exist and people sometimes expect everything to be 100% perfect. And it's like, no, it can't be because it's just, it doesn't exist right now. There are too many parts. The system is a mess. It needs to be fixed. 100% it needs to be fixed. But I think there's an expectation there that needs to be discussed. And I think some companies are afraid to be transparent about that because they don't want to get called out for greenwashing. doesn't mean that you shouldn't be honest and upfront. And I respect a lot of companies. There's, I don't remember which brand. There was a company making swimsuits and they were using, there's a fabric called, called re-nylon or what have you. I don't remember the name. It's a recycled poly nylon fabric that is used in swimwear. And the company was saying, yes, we're using this and it's good to use this recycled poly nylon fabric. However, there are still micro fibers that are going to come off of this fabric and no, it's not 100%. I respect 100% the company for saying that, but here's the flip side of that fabric. Now that we know about the microfibers that come off of polyesters, actually more microfibers come off of that recycled fiber. So you're thinking you're buying this and it's better because it's recycled, but now studies show it actually, you lose more, which goes into the water and the drainage system, but then people are going to be like, oh, so which one is better? And then I shouldn't buy this, but you said that this was this. And it's like, no, nobody knows yet. It's a learning process. There's a lot mm -hmm. of things that have to be undone and then fixed in order for it to work. And mistakes are going to be made along the way. And I think that is the story that they need to be telling more and talking about more. And then there wouldn't be so much of this greenwashing because at the end of the day, you are being completely honest and upfront that no, the system isn't perfect and we don't have all the answers, but we're working to make things better. You know, I think people are looking for perfection and they need to understand that perfection does not exist. You can improve and you can make better. And of course, we should accelerate the steps to making things better. 
but we need to be honest about what we're doing. And I think that's the problem is that people are selling a narrative that doesn't exist because it is impossible for it to exist right now with the current system. And I think it's, it's really about accountability. And I feel brands don't know because sustainability is so new right now because we're really now seeing the ramifications of it. And I think with the pandemic, now this conversation has accelerated as a consumer. It's okay. So which brand do I buy? I'm going to say that that's the other part of it is that you need to do your homework. Absolutely. Like that's, there's a problem with thinking that why are you depending on the brand to have the answers for you? And I think that's a little bit how I feel too about kind of looking at the past and, and talking about the hills and, and what body types were out there and what people were subscribing to. I didn't subscribe to that because I knew that it wasn't me and I wasn't fooling myself into thinking that I fit that narrative. And I think that's something I've been aware of since an early age. I, I had a very clear understanding that most of the narratives out there was not mine. And so I wasn't getting caught up in that. I'm not saying that it didn't hurt or I didn't feel a way looking at these images and, and not seeing myself in them. But I also understood that because I didn't see myself in them didn't mean that fashion wasn't for me. And it didn't mean that I couldn't adapt clothing and the way I dress to suit my body, which straight up, I have a bigger butt than a lot of these clothes out there. And I'm, I'm very used to walking into stores, especially when I was younger and trying something on and noticing that it go, went up in the back because of the way my body is shaped and being okay that's fine. I'm going to make clothes or at least adjust my clothes and fit clothes to the way I want them to fit for me. And I'm not going to get caught up with the fact that I don't look the skinny white girl because I don't, and I'm not going to. And just because that's what's out there, I don't have to follow that. I think that understanding and that thinking is what has carried through for me. So when I look at people saying, well, this brand isn't doing this and ask questions, do your homework and don't depend on the person who's trying to sell you something to give you all the answers, because at the end of the day, they're trying to sell you something. It's in their best interest um, to give you a story that suits them, not necessarily the whole picture if they're not being completely upfront. And sometimes they just, they don't know and they don't want to be liable. So they don't say certain things. That's the other, yeah. it's a tricky, tricky little system. It shouldn't be this complicated, but it is. As a designer who is occasionally the consumer, where do you draw the line or how do you make the distinction between a company that's clearly greenwashing, is telling you all the stuff about recycled fabrics, but is still exploiting labor in the global south versus a company that is maybe smaller and is using greenwashy language, but is not necessarily as bad. With a grain of salt. Number one, I personally, sticking with natural. What's a natural fiber versus a non-natural fiber? So a natural fiber would be something that is grown from anything, a natural resource. So cotton is a natural fiber. It's grown. It's from a plant. It's plant-based. Hemp is plant-based. Linen is plant-based. It comes from the flax plant. And there are other fibers that haven't been uh, talked about a lot due to things that happen in history, and and this is a whole other conversation, is that hemp is a miracle fiber. It does many different things, but hemp is cannabis, right? The only difference between marijuana and hemp is the THC level. That's it. And that is arbitrary. There's a book, somebody decided, hey, if it's less than 0.3 THC, then it's going to be hemp. And if it's above that, then it's marijuana that's the drug, whatever, it's the same plant. There are different reasons as to why it wasn't developed in the same way as cotton. One, the cotton industry didn't want it developed in that way. There is a racialized history to marijuana also that it wasn't pushed or developed in the same way. And they associated it with marijuana. So it was a plant that didn't get 
the research and the development it should have had the same way cotton had. So now we see this resurgence of hemp coming up. And even now to grow hemp, like it can be difficult depending on where you are, but actually it's, it's ecological. It's naturally sustainable. It's good for the ground. It's less water intensive than cotton is. It takes a shorter time to grow. There's less work that goes into getting hemp to the fiber stage than there is to cotton, but the cotton industry is much bigger. And that's a whole other history that really centers a lot around colonialism and the current capitalist system that we see today. And if you look at cotton and the development of cotton, you will understand what capitalism is today and the market system that we have. But yeah, so that's a natural fiber. You have other fibers, you have other plant-based fibers, dogbane, nettle, what have you, uh, milkweed, even milkweed. These are plant fibers that can create fabric, but some of them weren't developed again due to that history, due to cotton's dominance, due to the association. I think there were some of those fibers were used by the indigenous communities, uh, nations within Canada. And because of the colonial history and what have you, there were restrictions put on using those fibers. There's a whole host of things as to why some of these fibers were not developed as they should have. And then you had polyester, which is a man-made fiber, which is straight up fracking on, on your body, right? Because that's what polyester What's comes polyester? from. It's, it's like oil and plastic. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's basically what it is. It's the same. It's a man-made fiber that comes from oil. And then it was developed. There's a whole history as to how that fiber came to be. It seemed like a miracle fabric. You use it in your, you know, your workout where everybody wears leggings. Guess what? A lot of leggings are made from polyester. It stretches, it gives, it does all this stuff. In the 70s, polyester became very big. You know, you were getting all these bright colors that you printed and, and it doesn't lose its color in the same way as cotton does. It doesn't fade. But there's a problem with that fiber now that we understand, looking back at it, is that it's harmful to the environment in terms of making that fiber. And then there's also the fact that it doesn't biodegrade. Natural fibers are natural. Eventually, they're going to break down, especially if we use the right dyes and we use the right materials to put them together. But polyester doesn't. It takes, I don't know how many years for it to even begin to break down. And then when it does break down, it's not good for the environment, what it breaks down into. So yes, one of the things I stick to is looking at natural fibers. So some people have been using a recycled fiber and you, you can look up bathing suits from ethical companies and whatnot. And you're going to see that a lot of them use this re-nylon or what have you. But the problem with that fabric is the, the microfibers that come off of that when you wash it and what have you. And there are bags that you can use to wash the fabric so that it catches some of those microfibers, but it's an issue, right? And again, once you're finished with that swimsuit, it's not going anywhere because the fiber that it's made of is not natural. It's not going to biodegrade. It's not going to break down and it's going to continue to exist even longer than you exist because that's what that material is. It's it comes from fossil fuels. So that's what I look for when I look to buy garments. The other thing is I don't believe in garments that are not properly priced. I'm not buying a $5 t-shirt because I know that that $5 t-shirt did not cost $5. I mean, think about it. You needed material to make that t-shirt. Somebody needed to create a pattern and then had to cut it up. Somebody else had to sew it. Oh, and if it's dyed, somebody had to dye that t-shirt. And do you really think that all of those things went into that t-shirt and it only costs five bucks and that makes sense? Like you have to ask yourself that question. Do you need to have 10 $5 t-shirts or is it better to have that one? I don't know. Maybe it's a $50 t-shirt and it's made from organic cotton and it was used, made with natural dyes and it'll probably last longer because it's probably a stronger cotton fiber that was used to make that t-shirt. So it'll probably last you a whole lot longer than having those $10, $5 t-shirts. You have to look at the quality of the, the material. How thick is it? You know, these are things that people 
need to consider. And that's, those are the things that I consider whenever I'm making a garment. And for sure, I will tend to buy more high-end garments. I will do a lot of thrifting because I love looking at how garments are made. But yeah, those are all things that I think about when making a purchase. And I would rather spend more on one item than spend a lot on a bunch of different items. And that's just me thinking, being realistic. I mean, I also look at the company. I'm not going to say that I'm overly concerned where things are produced, because I also understand that you can have something produced locally in a really dirty, bad factory, and you can have something produced overseas in a factory that has, you know, put in good ventilation for their workers, has fair and equitable payment for their employees, you know, does all these different things, and that can happen. So I also think people should stop assuming that just because something is labeled as being made local, that it is an ethical or sustainably put together. Yeah, my favorite thing to do is to comment on local Montreal fashion ones that don't have any plus size representation. I'll be like, hi, does this garment use prison labor or? And then- so it's funny, you bring that up and I went in and out of you guys' conversation earlier. And I'm going to have to say again, when you're a company and a small company, let's take a local company, for example, and you need to create uh, garments in a bigger size range, it can be hard for you because if you don't have the market and you make those garments and you don't sell them, you're stuck with those garments. You're stuck with that stock. You've made the investment into creating that. And now that money is there sitting and you don't have the client base to purchase those garments. So unless you're really pushing that and that's your market, that can be an issue for you. And it's just something to realize that one of the reasons people, they start with whatever, I'm going to say a base size. It's easier to fit a slimmer person. And this is why models are skinny because the garments aren't necessarily made to fit them. The garments kind of hang off of them. And if you're going to be looking at doing a larger size run, then it's hard if you don't have that clientele. If you build it, they will come. Yes, but you have to have the resources to build it. That's the problem is that, especially if you're a small company, and you don't necessarily have a lot of financial resources to, to go around and understand when you're also a designer, whatever money you put out, and I'm really talking about a smaller company, whatever money you put out, you don't see any return on that for a year and a half. So you might have two or three collections that you've had to put together that you're not going to get any money back on for another year and a half, two years. And somehow you have to keep producing in that amount of time, which is why it can be difficult. We should have more made to order models. I think those are really cool. I Except agree. it's a slower process. Yeah. And it depends on how you set it up. It can be a slower process, but if that's a company that you've created, then yeah. it could work. The difference, it's not also that it's slower. The other problem is economies of scale. So mm. you're working with a seamstress or a manufacturer or a company if they can make a whole bunch at once, it's going to cost less. It's going to cost them less time and it's going to cost the company who's ordering that less money. So it's less expensive to make a whole bunch of something all at once instead of making one piece at a time for the manufacturer that's sewing that garment. It's more time consuming for them. So they're going to charge you more. This big argument that people have is that, oh, it's extra fabric. So it costs too much. So these clothes are more expensive because it's extra fabric, but in the same vein, if you buy all your fabric in bulk, if you invest initially in the process of having larger sizes, then your bottom line down the line is cheaper because you're having people return. And there are so few plus size fashion retailers that it's just give me one. I'm agreeing with you 100% page. There should be more. 
but a lot of people don't get into that market because I think in the past there was a stigma and, and thinking that, you know, somebody who was of a fuller, more curvaceous body, that it would be harder to sell to them or it's not as fashion. And I'm happy that that narrative is changing. You know, that's a part of this whole idea of what is popular culture and what is considered fashionable or what is considered ideal. That's changing. And yeah, you know what, if you're going to be in a company and get into this and really make garments for any person who is of a fuller body type, you focus on that, do it well, create that and make a brand that is really for that. In terms of the cost for the fabric, I have to say to you that, yes, if you hit into a bigger size run, it does take more fabric and it is going to cost more money. Think about kids' shoes and adult shoes. There's a reason why the kids' version of that Nike, whatever, is a certain price. And there's a reason that adult, it's a bigger shoe. It takes more material. So the material goes into the cost and a garment is costed by how much fabric it takes. And after a certain size range, the manufacturer is 100% going to change that because it's taking a certain amount more fabric. But again, if your company is built that way and you understand that this is the market that you're in, you're thinking about that from the beginning of your design and concept and creation. But there is a difference. Well, for any listeners that want to become designers, there's a market and there's a really cool way to do it, made to order. You heard it here first. You heard it here first on Sustainable Concordia. Waiting to not be afterthoughts, really. Truly. (laughs) And you shouldn't be an afterthought. You should not. No, and there's even, there's ways to design that obviously works with a fuller shape and size. And there are certain dresses that I'm not going to wear because there's no support for my chest. And I need a dress that has support for my chest. And I can't wear that dress. It's not for me. And it wasn't created for my body type. And I'm okay with that. But I just want to make sure that there is a garment that is for my body type. And it's the same thing. There are different body types and those different body types deserve the right amount of attention. And unfortunately, when we live in a culture that is about mass production, the body types that sit as the outlier or the ones that are more problematic to fit, what have you, and they're not even problematic. It's just a different set of skills that you need. I'm thinking also about fashion checker. And we've said this in previous episodes, that fashion checker thing is not for perfection. It's to say, okay, these are all the things that we're trying to accomplish. And this is how well we're doing it, right? It's a list of things that this company is doing and how well they're accomplishing it. This fashion checker has this way of comparing how well you're actually doing with the environment and achieving these markers of sustainability, right? So what's next? How do people achieve these markers of sustainability better? Is there a better way Mm -hmm. to track these markers of sustainability? And what can we do locally to demand more from the brands that we are consuming? Okay, so I'm looking, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Sustainable Concordia and the work that you guys do, which I really respect because it talks about sustainability, not just in terms of, hey, is this organic cotton? But also in terms of, hey, what about the workers? What about the country that you were making this in? What about the social justice aspect of it? Because that is a part of sustainability and that gets left out of the conversation. I haven't used Fashion Checker, so I don't know if they include that in their marks when they talk about a brand being more sustainable. But I don't think any company can really be sustainable if it's a huge conglomerate with making, I don't know how many thousands of garments. There's only so much clothes that you can put out into the world. And to be quite frank, the world has most of the clothes that it needs already, which is sometimes what makes fashion difficult for me because I want to create things that really make me happy and smile. But it's also problematic because if you just keep creating stuff, 
how much room do we have for more stuff? I'm trying to balance out when I make a purchase. I'm not purchasing a new garment because I need it anymore. I'm purchasing it because it makes me happy in some way, shape or form. It's very rare that I'm purchasing something because I, maybe I need a new pair of heels because to be quite frank, I wear a lot of sneakers, but <laughs> you know, that's something that I think about a lot before buying anything. In terms of how things can change and what are the next steps, I think people have to be transparent and being honest is a big part of it because you need to say, no, we're not doing this right now because we, we just can't, but we're working to do it. But right now we can't. There are also a lot of companies that are working on things, but they don't say them publicly because they don't want to get shot down for not doing it right now. So they work on things behind the scenes, but they don't advertise it. And I think in general, we all have to think about our attitude to sustainability and understand that it's not a trend and it's not something that's just for right now, but it's a part of the way we need to live our lives in general. You should be thinking about not just where your garment comes from, but you need to think about where your food comes from. You need to think about the packaging for your food. You need to think about the packaging of that garment. These are all things that we have to consider. You need to think about your consumption of water at home. And these are things that are on a smaller scale. But I think when you begin to really question those things on your day to day, then from a macro perspective, you'll begin to think about them too with the companies that you buy things from. And how do you make things change? Well, it's a capitalist system. And a capitalist system is all about money. So make things change with your dollars, unfortunately. I would like to say that we make things change by people's goodwill, but until this system is no longer based on the selling of things to people, it's sell more, right? Well, then the best way to deal with these companies is with your dollars and saying, I'm not going to purchase from you until you make a change, but I will purchase from this brand because they are making that change, or at least I see them doing things. I understand what they're doing. And yeah, it takes a bit of research and it takes a bit of work and we all live busy lives and we don't all necessarily have the time to do that. But unfortunately, we have to take the time to do that. There's no easy fix and there's no way around it. I use myself as my own example, the way I'm going to live my life. And that's kind of how I approach everything else. And I'm not perfect at it. And I don't have all the answers. That's why I say I'm evolving. I 100% agree, Nadia. And I think it's all of the above answer because we all have to do something as a designer, as a consumer, as a producer, manufacturer, grower. I also have a problem with this idea of sustainability being sold as a lifestyle. And it's a very privileged narrative these days because sustainability has been something that's been practiced in amongst marginalized and brown and black people since forever. Reusing a container is not an ingenious idea. And this is why part of what I'm working towards is also to change that narrative that sustainability is this privileged conversation because it isn't. People were taught to use things once and throw it away. They were taught that by industry. The plastic industry is the one who came up with this idea that it's wrong. Don't save it. No, no, no. Throw the plastic in the garbage. That was all created. You know, that's what people were taught and now they have to unlearn it. But for sure, people who come from marginalized communities, people who don't have a lot of money, they're pretty good at reusing and figuring out ways to not spend more money on things they don't need to spend money on. And I, I also think, again, we shouldn't put so much pressure on brands. And I feel all these reports that come out for transparency, it's just a tool, but we have to remember that transparency isn't sustainability. And I think all of the money that's being spent on advertising on how to live a more sustainable life should be invested in how to have real sustainable solutions. So that's one aspect of the picture that we forget 
to address. And you've touched on it before, but I think overall, one thing that we all need to think about, and we've been having this conversation of our consumption problems, is we just need to slow down. That is this concept that we hear about economists talking about of degrowth. It's just literally slowing down. For me, I've been loving fashion because it's just been a way to express myself and who doesn't want to express themselves, mm. you know? And I started to take apart clothes and make new clothes because it was my only option. But I'm realizing now we should stop asking ourselves, what is the most sustainable brand to buy? But instead ask yourself before you buy something, it's do I need to buy something new? So I think it's less about the sustainable product and more about your journey to becoming a more conscious consumer. Asking yourself the question and having the conversation 100% is a step in the right direction. Yes, look, we're trying to balance out fashion, the art, and then the need for clothing. So when you purchase something out of a love because if you love that design, that's feeding a different need in your life. If we were slowing down, then more time could be put into design, which is where this joy should be. If you're purchasing that dress, because to you, it's purchasing a Monet and that's what you were purchasing it for. Fantastic. You wouldn't be buying 10 of them. You'd be buying that one because you appreciate the design and the creativity and everything that went into making that garment. But you're right. The way that companies are set up right now, it's not about the design. It's about the product. And it would be really nice to get back to the design. For we go. Tell me, if you can, three fictional characters that base your style on. I'm the worst person to ask these questions to because, sorry, don't subscribe to any of it. I really get dressed based on how I'm feeling for that day. And it's not necessarily based on anything other than, you know what? I feel this. This is hard. It could even be a real person that you love. Hmm. Grace Jones, 100%, because she just has a presence, right? So I think when you get dressed, you want to have that presence. And I'm not necessarily going to wear what Grace Jones wears, but I definitely want to put pieces on that make me feel I have that presence. I'm trying to think of, look, I know 100% I'm influenced by my mom and watching how she dressed when I was younger. Because my mom, she used to put on killer outfits to go out. My mom was, she had the match and everything was working together. And I was very much, I remember watching her getting dressed to go out and be like, oh yeah, okay, that's nice. And oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. This is something I, I very much got it from my mom. And 100% because she is a black woman was that I had to go out there carrying myself a certain way. It wasn't that I couldn't wear ripped jeans, but if I'm wearing ripped jeans, I have to wear them with a certain style and attitude. I have to be put together because no matter what I do out there, I'm going to be judged. So make sure that you carry your head high. And when you put yourself together, you put yourself together with care and consideration. And that is also your armor. That care and consideration that you're putting on yourself is your armor when you go out there. And it's how people are going to look at you a certain way, but you have to be ready to face that. I, I knew that I was getting dressed to make me feel good when I was out there. That's all that really mattered, regardless of what other people thought. And if I thought I wanted to wear pink and red today. Well, then I was going to wear pink and red today. And if I was doing it with style and finesse, then I was good. Wow. Anyways, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. I feel smarter just being in your presence. We'd love to have you come back. You know what? I'll say what I normally say. You got to find a balance between function and beauty. When you put function and beauty together, well, then that's the closest you're going to get to perfection. And challenge perceptions and shared perspectives. And I think that's what you guys are doing here, which is why I'm very happy to be a part of it. So thank you for having me. Theme song provided by Jonathan Robinson. <laughs>